Hey, what's up? I'm Lou from Sick of It All, and I'm here in Frederick Straga's apartment in Stockholm. I'm super psyched to have you here, Lou. Thanks for coming. Thank you. This is a nice place, man. One of your most famous songs is Clobberin' Time, <laughs> an early Sick of It All song. Yes. Um, and I remember hearing it and thinking, wow, that's a quote from The Fantastic Four. That was my favorite comic book when I was a kid. Because exactly. that's what the thing, like the orange... Brick-like yeah, guy, yeah. guy would, would scream when he got into a fight. <laughs> yep. And now I see that you're wearing a T-shirt with a picture of the Juggernaut. Yes. Like a Marvel Comics bad guy. <laughs> uh, that's, what band is that? Crown of... Crown of Thorns. Oh. Yeah. They have a song called The Juggernaut, and he wrote it about the character. <laughs> How much did Marvel Comics mean to you? When I was a kid, it was a lot. It meant a lot to me, you know. Uh, it was funny. Growing up in our area, it wasn't a... Uh, uh, urban but it wasn't suburban it's like queens it's like in between and uh so yeah like tough kids whatever and i remember being 10 and everybody and all my friends they all wanted to start smoking so we saved up our money we would buy cigarettes and try to smoke and me i was like i just buy comic books because it was more fun to me i got more enjoyment out of it but yeah comic books was uh i just loved it the artwork the stories you know it just it just spoke to me a lot of people who who read the Marvel comics got into the band Kiss when they showed up in the 70s because yeah. they were like superheroes uh, yes. but on, on stage. And I, I know that your older cousin was actually Ace Freely's babysitter, babysitter at yeah. some point. I that, didn't know that till later that's in, insane. in life. Yeah, it's really crazy. I didn't know that till later in life. But yeah, she, uh, she babysat Ace Freely. Uh, she knew... Uh, Paul Stanley, too. I don't forget how she knew him, but she babysat Ace Freely. So you listened a lot to Kiss as well? Yes. One of the the first, like, you know, growing up, we were exposed to regular AM radio, rock radio, and all that stuff, like, like from my, through my parents. And, you know, uh, got everything from Frank Sinatra to the Beatles to Roy Clark to Jackson 5, stuff like that. But we met a friend of ours, and he showed us his Kiss records. And we were like, this is amazing. We went home, we told my mother about it. And later on that year, when school ended, like as an end of year present, she went out and bought me and my brother Pete, who's in the band, uh, Kiss Alive. And it was just like, wow. You know, it was like the greatest thing to us that our mom went out and bought us the Kiss Alive album. This is a Black Diamond from Kiss. And uh, when our mother had given us the Kiss Alive album, my brother Pete took it to school. And I remember her writing his uh, our last name on the cover of it, which is funny because we still have it, and it says Kohler on it. But uh, he, went, he took it to school because in school they were letting you play a record. And uh, the, he, when he was going to put it on, his one of his best friends said, play Black Diamond. And when they put it on, he, his friend just went crazy and picked up and threw a chair across the room. And that's when Pete was telling me, he goes, that's when he knew the power of music, the effect it has on people. That's a bit of a foreshadowing of what was to come with yeah. hardcore music. How did you get into hardcore punk? 
that, again, it was just a progression. We always liked more aggressive stuff. I mean, even when my parents, we would take their Beatles record, but we would play the song Revolution, but just the beginning with the guitar and the scream, you know, it was like, nah, 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 wow. And then we would stop it and play it again. We do it so much, and my mother came in and was like, play the whole song or shut it off, because we just love the energy of it. And it just progressed. Like, we got into bands like, you know, Deep Purple, and then from Deep Purple, we get into Rainbow and Black Sabbath, but it was always the more up-tempo songs we liked, and Judas Priest. And then my older brother brought home a Plasmatics record, the Plasmatics from New York City, and it was just high energy insanity, and, and it just built from there, you know? Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You and your brother Pete started Sick of It All, but you also have two older brothers. Yes. Were they into music as well? Yeah, the one who's a year older than me, he's like the uh, the oldest one is into, you know, music, but not as much as me and Pete and the one who's a year older than me, my brother Matt, he's the one who brought home the Plasmatics record and then, uh, you know, brought home a Motorhead record and we got into it through him, you know, and uh, it was just great. He'd bring all that stuff home and we would just eat it up. And from there, you know, we started getting our own tastes and our own likes, so... As a kid, you would go to Manhattan. You would, like, jump on the train and go into town. What was Manhattan like in those days, like the early 80s? Was it a very different city? Yeah. Well, let me tell you a story. Like, downtown uh, St. Mark's, where, you know, even then it was it was a cool, the cool village. had all these cool little shops. We were going to a, a shop called The Pit, and they sold, like, you know, uh, what you call biker attire, S&M gear, and punk rock clothing and records. So we're going to the pit, and I have on uh, a denim vest that I painted Black Sabbath Volume 4 on. My like brother, the, the, the orange picture yes, of Ozzy. The Ozzy, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think Pete had an, he painted an exploited 
uh, picture on the back of his jacket, and our friend just painted this big skull on his. Now, this is how different New York is. We're walking from the subway to that store. We pass a cafe. There's two Hell's Angels sitting outside. We get into the store. Two minutes later, the Hell's Angels walk in and say, take those jackets off. And we're like, why? And they go, you don't wear your colors in our neighborhood. Now, me being a kid, I was maybe 12, 13 at the time. I was like, what the hell are colors? You know, they didn't like it. They thought we were wearing gang jackets. They took all our jackets and cut them up and took them back to the, the Hells Angels uh, clubhouse on 3rd Street. But your denim jacket must have been tiny because you were 12. Yeah, they, 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 we were sitting there. We were like, we're just kids. And they were just like, we don't care. So it's just like, that wouldn't happen now, you know? <laughs> You could go down to St. Mark's and order a latte anywhere and not be harassed by the Hells Angels. It was a more dangerous city at that point. Yeah, but w- was, was that also kind of a source of excitement for you as a kid? Yeah, it was. It was. I remember uh, going, the first matinee I tried to go to at CBGB's was a negative approach and a band called Flipper. And I remember making it all the way to across the street and I looked at the crowd out front and I just... Kept going. I didn't stop. I was so young and scared because I was by myself. What did people look like? You know, just punk and hardcore, but it was very intimidating to me because I, you know, I was a small, skinny kid and uh, I just felt, oh man, this is, you know, they all looked scary. They all looked frightening. But in reality, like two weeks later, we all went to see uh, Corrosion of Conformity and our friends Leeway, where it was their first time uh, ever playing at CBGB's. And When you got in there, all those scary people were so fucking cool to you. You know, they were so nice. The most dangerous thing that you ever went through was probably this car crash. Because one of <laughs> yeah. your friends owned like a muscle car. Yeah. Well, and you was... got in it with your brother without yeah. wearing seatbelts. And what happened? Because we're young and dumb. <laughs> uh, you know, that was the thing. Growing up in our neighborhood, it was muscle cars. And in that era, it was all muscle cars and and. We weren't really racing. We, our other friends were in another muscle car. We were just driving really fast. But it was raining lightly, and we hit a manhole cover, and uh, we hydroplaned into a, through a, a concrete divider and into a bunch of trees. And uh, we ended up, uh, my brother cracking his sternum in half, and uh, I had flown into the windshield and fell back onto the gear shift and burst my spleen in half. So, But you survived. Yeah, yeah. We were close to death, I guess. You know, it's it's weird talking about it now. Like when when then I didn't realize how close to death we were. But you know, they had to give me a whole blood transfusion because I lost so much blood. Does it sometimes worry you that you know, doing dangerous things might be something that you have in your genes that you've brought on to your your kids? I hope not. I really hope not. I worry so much about my daughter. Uh, Luckily, she's pretty cool. She's pretty safe. She's not scared to try things. Like, she loves skateboarding and, and stuff like that. But so far, her and her friends haven't gone racing in cars yet. They're too young. How important was rap music to you? Because there were a lot of 80s and 90s rappers from Queens. Yeah. Uh, like a little Cool J. Yeah. Run DMC, Mob Deep. Yes. Um, it was just, see, back then, I, I don't know if it was everywhere, but for us growing up in Queens, it was just there. It was It was always there. You know, we would sit, we had this uh, alleyway, which was really a passageway from the outside of a school into the schoolyard. And we would hang out there at night and we would play music, but we would play everything from, you know, the Dead Kennedys. And then we would play, you know, Curtis Blow and then Run DMC. And then we'd play Black Sabbath. You know, that was just us growing up. Uh, it was funny to us. Uh, I remember even early on before there was 
bands like Anthrax and everybody doing it. There was a, a hardcore punk band called uh, Nevermore that played CBs, and they would close their set every night by playing a, a rock box by Run DMC. <laughs> you know, so it was just there. You know, there's a weird connection between Sick of It All and Mob Deep because they used your Dragon logo yeah. once without really knowing where it came from, right? Yeah, which is kind of I think a lot of bullshit. You know, because. Uh, Go, again, they, they stole go, it. Going me. back to Queens, it was funny. The, the the way we found out, a good friend of ours was working in in at their record label. She was into. She worked. She loved hardcore and stuff, but she also loved hip hop. So she was working at this hip hop label. And one day, she walks over to the art director's desk to hand him something. And she looked at it and she goes, "Why do you have a sick of it all uh, flyer behind your desk?" And he goes, "Oh, that's that's not a." He goes, "That's the new Mob Deep album cover." And she goes. Uh, that's sick of it all's dragon. They've had it for over 10 years. And he said, oh, no, no, blah, blah, blah. And they claimed they didn't know it was ours. They got it at a tattoo parlor, which could have happened, you know. But I think it's bullshit because they hang out with a, a hip-hop act called the Beat Nuts. And if you go to the Beat Nuts guy's house back then, you went to his apartment on his front door of his apartment, he had a bunch of stickers. And right in the center is a big sick of it all sticker with our dragon on it. So they must have fucking seen it before. They really liked it because both members of Mob Deep had tattooed it tattooed it. on their hands. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. But it was just one of those things. It, it's cool. Uh, I think recently they tried to reuse it again. And we were like, guys, you got it. It's, it's not yours. It's associated with us for all these years. So, But who designed it? It was actually designed by a tattoo artist, a guy named Greg Irons. We we got it and we, we started, made it look more like the sick of it all dragon you see now. And theirs is exactly our dragon, so that's the problem. But it's not even a problem. But it ended up we did the track with them uh, for a, a compilation. I forget the name of the compilation. It was kind of like the Judgment Night soundtrack, but it was just it had a lot of good songs on it. It's it a horrible album cover. It was just really ugly. <laughs> but you know, the song came out good. This is Victim in Pain by Agnostic Front, uh, the, the title track, and the, the album is 15 minutes long, but it's so powerful, you don't even notice that it's just 15 minutes, it just makes you want more. And the first time I saw them play live, I was standing there, I had long hair, had my motorhead jacket that I had made, and uh, this guy comes up to me, skinhead guy, and he goes, you like, you like Agnostic Front? And I'm like, I love Agnostic Front. Victim in Pain is my favorite album right now. And he goes, that's great. Five minutes later, he gets up on stage. It was the guitarist, Vinny Stigma. He got up on stage and started. And I was like, I seen Black Sabbath two weeks ago, and Tony Ioni didn't come out and say hello to me. This is fucking great. I love fucking hardcore. And then just seeing them play, the power that it was, it was just, ah, oh, give me chills now. That's an interesting part of hardcore culture, or punk culture for that matter. That, yeah. you know, it's, that everyone is quite accessible. Yes. And yes. the music is supposed to be, you know, for everybody. But also it's sometimes difficult to get paid. Yeah. Because yeah. hardcore bands are supposed to play for nothing. Exactly. <laughs> I have a story for that too. We played, um, there was this festival that started in Germany called With Full Force. We played the very first one, we headlined it. We headlined the second one they ever did. And then the third one, I think they got like 
bigger metal bands like Typo Negative, Slayer. And then there was one year it was playing, it was Anthrax, Sick of It All, Ministry, and uh, Slayer was the headliner. And we did our set, and we had an amazing set, and it was crazy. And Tom Araya is standing on stage in front of Ministry, and he goes, how the fuck is Ministry going to follow that? And it was just hilarious. But when we went to get paid, our manager went to get paid, he saw that Anthrax got more money and whoever, some other metal band got way more money. Bands that went on earlier in the day before us got way more money, didn't get half the reaction we got. And he yelled, he said, the guy, what the fuck is this? You know, blah, blah, blah. And the guy goes, oh, they're a hardcore band. They don't expect to get paid a lot. It's like, do we get free gasoline? Do we get a free airplane? No, <laughs> we got to pay for shit. Maybe they thought that they were doing you a favor because you didn't want to be paid. Because then yeah. you would be, you know, Even less real. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, can you imagine? But when most people think of CBGBs, they think of like the 70s. But you were part of mm-hmm. the hardcore movement of the 80s. You formed in 1986. Yeah. I watched this documentary called American Hardcore which stops in 1986, in yeah, that and that's a, when you started. Yep. But you didn't have a feeling that the scene was dying or anything. You, No, I mean, the hardcore evolved, and I, you know, there were some bad aspects that it evolved into. Uh, I remember first going to CBGBs and, you know, from 84 on, where, you know, I, the crowd was so diverse. You have, like, the... the People with dreads, and you had the goth girls who'd come down, you know, which was we, we always thought was really cool. Like, holy shit, there's goth girls here, and it's Sunday afternoon. Look at them, you know, it's cool. And then it started to take its shape where, like, any scene, once it started to get bigger, everybody was like, holy shit, look how cool Agnostic Front and the Chromags look. I want to look like them. So everybody started looking like them, and it just blew out from there. Hardcore became, it got a look, it got us a sound even because there used to be bills where you would see you know a band like the Cro-Mags but then there would be a band from DC called Beef Eater who are more of like a heavy funk band and everybody loved that shit then after a while especially with the straight edge movement resurging you had all those bands playing they all had to be straight edge it would be like you know Youth of Today Bold and and uh Gorilla Biscuits would all be on one bill. And it was like seeing the same band f- three times, you know. The whole mosh pit thing, did that start in the late 80s? Or was it around? It evolved, when, yeah. It yeah. evolved. I remember when we first started going, it was mostly circle pitting. And then people started, you know, running back and forth, crashing into each other while the circle pit was on. And then it just, it evolved. There was a point where I remember a friend of mine in California said, like, how come everybody in New York dances like they're fighting the floor you know like they're going to the ground and punching and uh we kind of made a joke about that in our in our video in uh step down yeah the step down video which is basically a dance instruction manual to dances like the gorilla the pizza maker and the lawnmower lawnmower as you're pulling the lawnmower (laughs) started you gotta start it (laughs) but still it looked like violence to a lot of people yeah and it became violent eventually that's what sucked at cbgb's yes yes that's what sucked It, it the dancing got more violent. I mean, I remember even being dancing to Sheer Terror, who, uh, you know, because it brings out the primal instinct in you, I guess you could say. And by accident, swinging my arm back and breaking a, a guy's nose. And luckily, you know, the guy was cool. And I was like, holy shit, it was an accident. It was fine. But then it got later. And especially even now, it even got worse. I watch these videos on YouTube. People will send me, go, look at this. It's called crowd killing. Where what, the- what is crowd killing? 
it's like, really is it like weird. a wall of death or is it no, even worse? No, it's weird. It's like, it's, I think it's worse because it's like there's a, the pit is basically an empty circle and everybody's on the edge of the circle and these guys do their little kung fu moves in the middle, but then they turn and run and start punching and kicking the people standing on the side. Why the hell anybody would enjoy that or tolerate that at a show, I don't know. I haven't heard about that. Oh, luckily, I don't think it's come over here. It's It, it means a different thing sometimes, but it's weird because that's where bands like Knock Loose If you go back in YouTube and look at early Knock Loose videos, that's what it is. Those people doing that crowd killing shit. And now they're like one of the biggest bands in the in this genre, you know? I read this book called Mosh Pit Culture uh-huh. that came out in like the early 2000s. And um, your brother Pete is quoted and he talks about how moshing and slam dancing sometimes turned violent. And he says, there was this one guy, Dominican Bill, <laughs> he started off as a really cool kid who loved the music, but he was from the Bronx where it was kill or be killed. He started bringing this attitude down to CBGBs. Oh. It was things like that, ridiculous things like guns getting pulled yeah. that had them stop the hardcore matinees. That's exactly what stopped Because you would play the matinees like on Sunday afternoons. Yeah. Um, but why would anyone bring a gun to a show? That's what we said. Yeah. That's what we said. Uh, what what happened? Happened? Who, who was Dominican Bill? He was just a crazy kid from the Bronx. And he, you know, the, the hardcore attracted the outcasts and the weirdos. And and then, you know, and then when uh people like that would come. But they, they most of most everybody who came realized, yeah, you, you know, this is not like your neighborhood. You don't need a gun, you know. And even if they brought a gun, there's no reason to pull it out at CB's. But uh, I remember Dominican Bill got into an argument that day with somebody. And I, I don't know if his Bronx took over or his gangster fantasy, but he pulls his gun out and everybody just ran. And then that, and then Hilly from CBG was like, no more hardcore shows. That's it. And he stopped them, you know, for a long time. How do you feel about moshing these days when it has spread to many kinds of musical oh, genres? Yeah. I, I actually went to a Lord show at Lollapalooza here in Stockholm yeah. and there was a circle pit. You know, a, a, ver- a very a, a very a, a tiny sort of lame uh, circle pit, but still a circle pit. I, it's kind of like if you go back to the early the early to mid '90s. I remember the Beastie Boys were interviewed about uh, stage diving and crowd surfing. They go like, "When it's in a Burger King commercial, it's not cool anymore. It's like break dancing, and then now crowd surfing." But that stuff never sees the many. And it's funny. I don't. I always say we started the wall of death. It's It started when we were kids. It was natural. We'd just be at a show, any show, and a, and at some point, in the, and you're having fun and you're laughing, and you grab your friends, and you all line up on one side of the pit, and then the people on the other side, they see that they lined up, and then when the song started, you just ran into each other for fun. So I brought it out at our live shows, and in, in, I think it was '94 or '96, whatever, over here in Europe, and it just took off from there. Now I see it everywhere. I see. Hip hop artists doing a wall of death. I saw uh, I saw the Interrupters, the the new ska punk band that that's on uh, Hellcat Records. I saw them last weekend, or a few weekends before I left for the tour, and they did a wall of death. I was like, what the hell are they doing a wall of death for? There's no need for it in your music. People are happy and dancing. <laughs> you know. Is it sometimes annoying when? People try to get on stage and somehow feel that they have as much right as you do to that space. Because <laughs> there's a lot of people on stage yeah. at Sick of the Old Sometimes, concerts. yeah. 
Uh, it's annoying if they don't get off right away. Here's a couple of things I can tell people. If you're going to get up on stage, you got to commit. You get up, you turn around, and it's only three people standing there. You better jump either on those people or near those people, whatever. Don't get up there and dance around for five minutes. You know, the, the songs aren't even five minutes long, like two minutes. And uh, the other thing is, if you're going to sing along, don't yell in my ear. <laughs> I'm not like a megaphone. It doesn't go in my ear and come out my mouth. <laughs> Just yell into the microphone, not my ear. <laughs> you know how many times people come up and they grab me by my throat and scream the lyrics into my ear, which I'm really happy you love the song, but you're not really helping me right now. Did they ever like touch the microphone so you hurt your teeth? That, I've that's hit, quite common. I've been lucky. That's like uh, when when you we started going out with like uh, more professional soundmen. They were like, "Don't put your hand over the mic like that." I go. I have to. I hold the microphone where I have one finger above that looks like right under my nose, so it's like a kind of like a cushion or a break, so I don't smash my teeth in. That's yeah. smart. Or you could get the special microphone. I could try. Zombie Prescription by Snapcase was a great song. It, it was like an issuing of a new era of hardcore. Like, you know, you had uh, the youth crew uh, movement came in, and then there was another more uh, people shooting off to more reggae sound, like underdogs, so trying to imitate the bad brains. But Snapcase... So was, when was this? Like, this is like the mid-90s generation that loved Sick of It All and Agnostic Front, but also loved Sepultura and Pantera. And they mashed it together. One of the most innovative bands, along with, you know, later Refused. Uh, they, their sound was more metallic, more driving, not, uh, you know, more all mid-tempo and very heavy mosh. Like, you, know, you could just, like, dance to it. Like, it kicks in. It just makes you want to move, you know? Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The first time I saw you was in 2004 here in Stockholm. And you, you, you did the Wall of Death thing, but you didn't call it that. You said that you were going to play the Braveheart game. Braveheart. The Braveheart game. And there was some drunk idiot who screamed, Freedom! <laughs> right before the two parts of the crowd <laughs> ran together. That was great. That was funny because when we used to do it and we called it the Braveheart, we were playing in uh, uh, the Reading Festival in, in England. And when we did the Braveheart, I called it the Braveheart and we played the soundtrack through the PA before that we played the soundtrack from the movie Braveheart and all of the security happened to be Scottish and they just lit up like it was the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> they loved it. Henry Rowlands from Black Flag famously worked at the Hagendas parlor. Mm-hmm. Uh, what kind of day jobs did you have? I, I know oh that you God. once designed carpets or rugs yes, for yes. very rich people. Yeah, I worked on rugs for very rich people. We did rugs for... Uh, what the hell was his name? The, one of the richest uh, oil sheiks in the world. He was all silk rugs for his yacht. We did rugs for Michael Jackson, Peter Frampton. We did a rug for, and just yeah, just rich people. It was like it's all designed and then hand drawn. I would have to stretch what would basically be the back of the rug. I would stretch it, you know, like twenty five feet across, six feet down, and then do six, six foot sections down. And I'd have to draw the design on the back. And, you know, it was fun for a while, but, you know. So at some point, Michael Jackson probably moonwalked on a rug designed by you. <laughs> it could be, yeah. <laughs> That's fascinating. There's a famous picture of um, the Ramones when they supported Black Sabbath in Long Beach in 1978, where you can see Johnny Ramone flipping the audience off because yeah. they're getting booed off stage. Yeah. Because the distance between... It was a huge gap between like metal and punk at that point. Oh, yeah. And you guys, along with bands like Motorhead, helped to bridge that gap, I suppose. Oh, thank you. That's, but that's but nice. did, did you ever get any, you know, shit from metal fans or punk fans? Yeah, but very, that you were too once metal? in a while, you know, uh, we did a whole tour with Slayer. And it was tough, but it wasn't like horrible. And it was only two incidents on that tour where they, no, they didn't boo us. But it was like one or two people. I remember uh, in San Francisco, we ended our set and it was a kid with a Sepultura shirt and he kept flipping us off going, you suck, fuck you. And all he did was the mic was still on. I go, I might suck, but I'm up here with Slayer. You paid to see me. <laughs> and he was like, oh, give me the finger more. I go, doesn't matter. We got your money. You know, just to piss him off. And on the other hand, we did a bunch of shows at Rancid back in the day in California and I remember in the middle of our set, you know, people are going crazy, they're cheering. And this kid in the front goes, they sound like anthrax. And I looked at the kid, I go, you know, do you know what anthrax sounds like? Because it ain't this. <laughs> Didn't you use some kind of hip hop song as an intro on the Slayer tour? Yes, it was a big mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Which track did you play? Uh, EPMD's, uh, their first big, what was it? All I remember is the, uh, the they sampled... Don't get too close because you might get shot. That was the line. And it was funny because the lights would go down and a place would cheer like crazy and the hip-hop song would come on and it would just be dead silence. But once we started playing, they would go wild. You know, like it's the energy got them. 
What was it like to go on your first European tours? I know that you played Eastern Europe. Yeah. Quite early. Was it even before the wall came down? No, no. It was no. after. It was after the wall came down a few years later. But it was still very Eastern European. It was like. You know, we would get to some of the villages and it would be nothing is open. It's five o'clock, nothing's open. And it would be, you know, everything was gray for some reason. <laughs> and you played Croatia during the war. Yeah, but it was so far away from us. You know, we were like, is the war? Like, yeah, but everybody was like, yeah, it's on the other side of the country. You know, But I mean, it, it, th- those things are great. It, it's built us to be what we are. Like th- those first tours of Europe, we did, I think, 30 shows in 31 days, you know, it was like we landed, we went right to do the first show and then we would have like no days off and then one day off and then fly home. And it was, you know, in a van, all dead of winter. It, it was, when I think back of it now, it's like, wow, we were pretty crazy to do that. But it was, it, you know, you're young and it was a bonding experience and it was just what you did to get it done. I read your book, uh, The Blood and the Sweat, and one of the best chapters is about bus drivers. <laughs> the different kinds of bus drivers that you've had through the oh, years. Oh, man. And you, you mentioned this German guy. What was his name? Which one? Hammerhead? Hammerhead, yes. <laughs> what, what was Hammerhead like? Hammerhead was a, a leftovers from the 70s, 80s rock era. He had like the mullet haircut and he loved speed. And he thought any woman that came near the bus was there to have sex with the band or him. <laughs> and so it'd be like, your friend is coming with his wife. And he'd be like saying rude things to the woman. You'd have to go like, asshole, this, she's a friend of ours. Stop. It's not the 80s anymore. And he had this kind of James Bond-like way of introducing himself. His introduction himself. was, my name is Head Hammerhead, licensed to fuck. <laughs> <laughs> that's, how, that's what we were dealing with. Uh, he passed out. One time we were driving to go to the Roskilder Festival. He passed out. Yeah, we got off the ferry and we said, okay, it's a, I don't know how long it was. Say it was like a, a three hours to the, to the festival from where we were landing. And uh, we're driving and I remember being in my bunk and all of a sudden we stopped and we're stopped for a long time. And I look out of the bunk and I see our tour manager. I go, are we here? We can't be here yet. And he gets up. And we go to the front of the bus and Hammerhead is passed out drooling all over himself because he crashed from his speed high that he did all night. So we had to wake him up and make him drive us to the... We were an hour late for our set, but it was amazing. What a great show. One thing that I've always felt is sort of refreshing with Sick of It All is that you've never pretended to be super hardcore mega tough guys because some other New York bands a bit like the Cro-Mags it feels as if they yeah. were like born in the sewers they started shooting heroin at the age of four <laughs> before they burned down their kindergarten you know they're really well, really really tough yeah. guys but, uh, I mean, but and you've never said anything like that you've always you know pointed yeah, out because you had great parents and everything we thought we thought that Hardcore was being about real, and and to their credit, the Chromags did live a life like not they weren't they true were in the sewers. <laughs> they, were, they were tough, you know. They yeah. John had a tough life, Harley had a tough whatever. They all had, you know, not all of them had a tough life, but that's that was uh, what they sang about. They lived, so we always thought we have to sing about what we we've lived or you know stuff that affects us, and uh, it was just like. I couldn't see myself writing lyrics about kicking ass. I mean, look at me. I'm like fucking 90 pounds, you know? <laughs> and, and, and it was funny because in the early days of Signal when we just had our demo tape out and then we would get shows 
and we would go to get up on stage, and everybody would be like, they thought either Pete or Armand was a singer because of the voice, and it was just like this skinny guy gets up and starts screaming. But uh, yeah, it was, it was, it's 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 just something we're not. We grew up in an era of, I guess, through our older brothers and our our, our fathers and uncles, it was all like a, a real tough guy doesn't boast about it, doesn't talk about it, you know. And it's weird because a lot of those hardcore kids that wanted to be tough made their lives miserable by trying to be tough, you know? And it's just like, I don't know, why would you want to do that? What did your father work with? He was a, a, a banker his whole life. Like we, from, I think when he got out of high school, he started working as a teller and then he just kept working there like that, you know? Does he still feel that you and your brother should get real jobs? Oh yeah, especially now. Especially, especially there was now. A, there was a brief period where he was like, you're doing okay, But, you know, you should really save your money. And now he's like, you, you got to get a real job. Like during the pandemic, you know, I needed to supplement my income because we couldn't tour. So I started, instead of getting a job with a corporate, I call up a friend of mine who runs a, uh, uh, a merch company, a printing shop. And uh, I went to work for him because it was easy because I could go in. I could be a half hour late every day as long as I just did my work. You know, it wasn't, wasn't like a real corporate job where you had rules and all this you know and he was cool as shit he was excited when we started to go back out on tour but my dad loved that i was doing physical labor every day because i jokingly called him up i go he goes how was your first day back i go hey dad i haven't stood on my feet for eight hours since 1997 you know i don't want to i'm not feeling it he laughed he loved that i was for some reason to him Physical work is much better than us touring and making more money. But I mean, sick of it all on stage, could labor be more physical? I know, but he doesn't see it that way, you know? <laughs> What's it like to play super fast hardcore as you grow older? Because it's you know, physically demanding physically, yeah. musical style. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, I you're, think my voice is change, not changing, but it, it, we can't do... Like the, the the first tour where it was 30 days in a row. You know, I have to do five days and at least get one or two days off to rest my voice. I'm not not the young kid or snap back like that anymore. But I mean, we've always, even if I'm feeling tired and and achy, when you're on stage, your adrenaline kicks in and you're just like you're, you know, in your 20s again or even your 30s. You're friends with Slayer. And mm. I, I remember Tom Araya got some trouble with his neck from headbanging. Yeah, yeah. You don't have any, like, physical injuries Just like that. Just, like, uh, different thing. I mean, we could go, like, my lower back is messed up. And uh, not just from touring, but, you know, uh, from playing live, but touring and, and other stuff. But, you know, you just got to learn to take care of yourself. It's weird. All these things that you saw your whole life and you're like, ah, I don't need that. I need this. But now I know stretching, yoga, all that shit. It's, it's good for you. And it keeps us young, too. It keeps us, especially the way that Sick of It All plays. It's not like, you know, there's other bands that play hardcore, but they all just stand around and play it. We, we just always felt the need to move. It wasn't something like we rehearsed, like, okay, at this point in the song, you jump, and this one, I don't know. It's just something that we felt, and it still feels that way to us. We still run around, and, you know, it's just fun. What's a bit weird, though, is that the Sick of It All songs become faster and faster the more you play them live. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I would have expected them to become slower because you grow older, but <laughs> you play them faster and faster. Even sometimes I'll be doing a song 
And Craig, our bass player, will turn around and tell Armand, you're playing it too fast. And in my head, I'm like, no, he's playing it slow. It's we all feel there. Always faster live. Uh, when Refuse did their first reunion, they played two nights in New York City and they invited me down because they wanted to sing Clobbering Time and uh, uh, Injustice System. And I went to the, they asked me to come to the sound check for rehearsal. And when we did it, it was so slow the way they played it because they were playing it like it was on the record. And I said to the drummer, I go, look, um, we played a lot faster live. And then later that night when I came back to the show, he goes, don't worry, it's going to be faster. I, li- I watched a bunch of you guys' uh, live videos on YouTube. I see what you do. And it was fine. It was great. This is one of, uh, uh, to, to show you that we're still playing fast, this is of our latest record, which was in 2018, uh, a song called Inner Vision. And it's, to us, we still, when we hear a fast song that grabs you, you know, it's not just fast for fast sake, it just has some kind of a groove to it too. Uh, that's what gets you, uh, the adrenaline going, it gets us moving. When Craig brought it, he was like, this is kind of like a Discharge song. And I said, sounds more like the Bad Brains mixed with Discharge. And that was like, to us, it was like, that's the greatest thing ever. The song that you did with Refuse, Injustice System, I know that you wrote that about how the police used excessive force to break up a riot after a hardcore show in upstate New York. What happened on that night? And that was uh, quite early uh, in your uh, career, yeah, right? Yeah, well, Armine's other band, Rest in... No, no, we played. That's right, we played. We played with this band, Murphy's Law, who were like uh, what we used to call the, the big three of New York City were Cro-Mags, Agnostic Front, and Murphy's Law. And so we played with Murphy's Law, and the local kids and the hardcore kids that came up from New York City didn't get along for some whatever reason. And so a riot broke out. And during this riot... My brother Pete is just putting his equipment away, not bothering anybody, not, you know, involved in the riot. And the police come running up and uh, they were like, you move here, get out, get out. And they were beating up a friend of ours. And people were like, whoa, whoa, leave him alone. And the cop turns around, didn't even say anything, just swings his club at him. And Pete blocked it. So the, he, the, he blocked the blow. And the, then three other cops grabbed him. So what they said was that he assaulted a police officer. And when they were all taken to jail, the only kids they took were the hardcore kids from New York. They didn't take any of the local kids. And when they went to jail, they treated them like shit. They wouldn't let them make phone calls like they're supposed to. It was a whole big thing. So that's what it was inspired by. Back in 1991, you took a stand against politics in your song, Politics. <laughs> when you sang, politics, who needs it? Politics full of shit. Politicians always lie. Politicians wish they die. Yeah. Do you still feel that way about politics or have you become more political? As you? Uh, I still feel that way because I, I got not deep into it, but I, I would get into like trying. And I noticed that no matter what, you do, somebody gets angry at you for whatever side you take. If you take the most moral stance that you can possibly take, 
somebody still hates you for it. So, and I don't care who's in the White House. They're just a figurehead for whoever's behind it. And it's, it's really depressing. And it's like to watch the way they divided the country over the last four or eight years, whatever it's been. And, and it's so funny that you can't see it. You can't see that they're starting a cultural war between, you know, oh, you know, white people, you're going to lose your, your uh, dominance on a country or you're going to lose your culture. They're, put it, they're pushing, you know, black culture, gay culture, they're pushing it all on you and they start this cultural war so you're not really seeing that they're just making all the money off of all of you people and treating us like shit. I know it's a simplistic version of it, but, you know. I know that you, like many other hardcore bands, have had some problems with parts of the audience being, like, borderline Nazi skinheads yeah. or full-blown Nazi yeah, skinheads yeah. as well. Um, I, I've read about one show in, in your book in Berkeley, in San Francisco, which is supposedly oh, yeah. like a very PC liberal oh, area. That was a, but there were tons of Nazis all over the place. That I, was a funny thing. It was like, I don't know if it was because they how were... How did that happen? I don't know if it was they, they were I mean, uh, it so like liberal the, that they let them come, but this is the famous Gilman Street, which is still there. And uh, it was the first time we played it and right away when we got there, we were greeted with attitude. Like, we walked in and they go, hey, we're sick of all, we're, we're playing today. And the guy goes, yeah, we know who you are. And we don't want any trouble. We know you New York bands. And we were like, this is our first time here. And he's like, ah, blah, blah. And during the show, there was an incident that happened in the club. And while that incident was going on, all the security was running around. These Nazi guys kicked in the side door and start running around zig heiling. Like, not during any music, just doing it. And it took us and the other kids to kick them out of the club. It was just ridiculous. And they weren't running around to music. It was No, just they busted quiet. in the side door and just started zigging. It's like... And you kicked them out. Yeah, we all had to kick them out. And it was funny because uh, years later, and I think it was here in Sweden, we were playing a festival and Green Day was on it. And... Billy, Billy, the singer, comes up to me and he goes like, I haven't seen you guys since Gilman Street. And I rolled my eyes and go, oh, you're at that disaster? Because the incident that had happened, there was a girl who was obviously drunk and high, a woman, not a girl, an older woman, older punk woman. And she kept calling us, uh, I'm going to use a derogatory term now, they go right ahead. straight edge faggots. Straight and edge we were, faggots. And I kept going, we're not straight edge, lady. And she kept calling us that and spitting at us. And she grabbed my brother's guitar and he goes, if you touch my guitar again, I'm going to kick you. And she grabbed his guitar and he kicked her. And then that was the bouncer's girlfriend and the big screaming match started. We were just laughing the whole time. And then while the screaming match is on, the Nazis came in. But that was the show that Billy from Green Day saw. And I go, oh, my God, I can't believe you saw it. He goes, no, you guys were great. And I go, yeah, but that thing with the woman, yeah, she was a friend of mine, but she was a junkie. <laughs> your brother mentions in, in your book that one of your early drummers got into, like, the white power thing, despite the fact of... He was full-blown Chinese. He was Chinese. Yes. But he still had a, a Hitler poster at home. Yeah. How did you talk to him about that? We were just, we were like, what the hell, what do you, why do you like this? And he wouldn't really have an explanation. I don't know why he was attracted to it. We, we tried to, you know, he was just lost. And then after that, like after he got out of all of that shit, he went right into the Marines and he was so into being a Marine and working out. And then that's, that was it. You know, that's, he, he, I remember the first time we played California, he was stationed out there and he brought like 
10 of his Marine buddies. And they were all, it was great because it's good to see him. He's there with Puerto Rican guys, black guys, you know, Italian guys. It was all mixed. It was, we were like, oh, so you're over here. I go, we would whisper to him, do they know about your Nazi past? He'd be like, oh, shut up, like laughing, you know. <laughs> When I read that, it, it made me think of, uh, I know that you're sick of talking about this, but but the Wayne Loth thing, you yeah, know, speaking yeah. of confused people of Chinese exactly. heritage, because he, he was a Nazi and he did the school shooting yeah. 30 years ago. And wore a sick of it all shirt for... Yes, a sweatshirt. Yes. With the sick of it all New York on. Yeah. How, how did you react to that? We were just like, holy shit. It was like a shock, you know? Uh, it's It's weird because... We would always joke around saying like, because there was a, back in the, I think it was the early 80s, there were these satanic murders on Long Island, New York, and the kid had an ACDC shirt on, and it was ACDC was evil, so we would joke around like, we need a guy shooting in a tower wearing a sick of it all shirt, and then it happened, and it was like, that's not funny, and it's not fun, but it was really, we were in Europe at the time, and uh, I'm getting calls from my parents, and I'm like, they never call me. You know, and it was just like, did you see what happened? But it was it was very uh, disturbing. And obviously, he didn't know anything about us besides aggression in the music. He didn't hear the lyrics. He didn't, you know, understand any of it. I guess some people get into like, you know, the Nazi thing. If they're in, if they're in black metal groups, they'll think that it's evil. Yeah, and that's I why that they, they enjoy it, it. Which I can I can relate yeah. to that, I guess. But but it's um, things have moved in a such a right-wing direction for a while now that it's mm-hmm. not as you know exciting anymore because yeah, you, you have like real nazis yeah and it's, are it, it, virtually in power so you like, go back to the states when trump started running and he started first thing out of his mouth is mexico sending rapists and not good people blah 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 and i'm like there's no way this fucking guy's gonna get elected and then people i grew up with in the hardcore scene going well he's not wrong and i'm like what the what do you mean he's not wrong <laughs> You know, and then you try to tell them and you can't tell anybody like that statistics or anything because they don't give a shit. You know, you're like, they're like, if you look at the crime statistics, crimes caused by illegal immigrants, very, very low, like almost non-existent because they don't want to get arrested. You know, one of the most stupid things I've read for a while was like a couple of years ago during the pandemic when someone... Some fan, I, I think they were fans of, of Rage Against the Machine, and they were complaining about Rage Against the Machine being too woke and too political. And you go like, oh, that's what they're about. That's what they're about, yeah. That's their, you know, reason to be. Exactly. I remember going to see them uh, in New York, and uh, we were walking into the venue, and the people outside, drunks, who fucking rage. And I was like, wow, this could be Judas Priest five years ago or 10 years ago. Like when we used to go see Judas Priest and be the drunk going, fucking priest. <laughs> now you got this guy going, fucking rage. Also, when we toured, we took Corn as an opening act. This guy going, fucking Corn. It's the same guy, I think. <laughs> it's funny because it makes you think of how annoyed Tom Morello will be when he oh, hears yeah. that. Because, yeah, know, everything is... Reduced to just stupid rock music. Exactly. No matter what you do. Exactly. I mean, even like lesser example like us, like with Wayne Lowe. But it's funny because uh, uh, Zach was a big, you know, he was in a hardcore band. He's a big fan. He he used to come see us in L.A. And I remember playing the whiskey once. Uh, we were two nights sold out. And Zach is standing on stage singing in Justice System, singing this song straight ahead that we used to do. And uh, that was a really cool moment. But he 
brought us at the New York show. Uh, this is still when the first album was out. Uh, they did five nights at the Roseland, which holds like three to 5,000 people. It was all sold out. And he brought us, he goes, I want to take you on tour, but the other guys don't really want to. I think it's because they don't know you as people. And, and we went in to meet them. And I have to say, I didn't think Tom Morello was a very nice person. He like was introduced to us and we said, hey, how you doing? And he said, hi, and then turned his back on us and walked away. And it's because they had, everybody has this preconceived notion that New York hardcore is dumb. They're just violent goons. And this is even before the gang shit started. But it was, again, it was people like Agnostic Front and Acromax who were living in squats, fighting real gangs and drug dealers to survive, you know? But how much of a connection was there between hardcore bands and actual gangs? Later on, it became a, like, uh, and I don't like to blame music for anything, but when gangster rap came out, instead of people going like, I loved it. I love, oh, gangster rap's fucking scary and it's fucking hard. This is tough. But I didn't run out and fucking get pants that hang, hung down below my ass and, and, you know, I didn't pretend to be a gangster. I just listened to the music and enjoyed it. These kids adapted that lifestyle. And again, these are the kids who ruined their own lives and started, you know, they came from good families or suburbs or whatever, and they became, I got to be tough, hard gangster. And they formed gangs, and it kind of ruined hardcore for a long time. All right, here's a track by... Uh, not really a newer band to, to us. All these bands are newer, but uh, this is our friend's comeback kid from Canada, and, and this is another band that I think takes hardcore in another direction, uh, like growing out of the the bands like Bane and Stretch Armstrong, and you have Comeback Kid where they mix melody and uh, hardcore aggression with heavier riffs, and uh, this is their latest record. I just love this record. I love, especially this track. It's really. A good, good track. Another one that just gets your adrenaline going. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. 
With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a quote by you from your book that I really Uh-oh. enjoyed. Uh, we're worried about paying our mortgages. We're worried about paying taxes. We're worried about whether or not our kids are going to the right schools. But when it comes to music, it's never like, oh, I've got to write an album that can pay my mortgage. (laughs) I want to write an album that's going to make me want to fucking smash a cop car window. (laughs) Exactly. I I couldn't help thinking that, you know, if you actually do smash a cop car window (laughs) at the age of 50, you you can get yourself into serious trouble. Maybe they'll just put me in a mental institution. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, that's the adrenaline that you want. And I got that quote. It's funny because uh, I think it was when we put out Scratch the Surface, uh, a friend of mine from California, uh, when we went out there, I said, what do you think of the record? He goes, what do I think? It makes me want to smash cop car windows. So that's like my review. That's like if an album makes me feel like that, I fucking love it. You know? Is it even possible to smash those? Because aren't they bulletproof? I don't know. <laughs> I actually, I do know. Uh, there was an incident once uh, where my brother used to have an apartment in Manhattan. Uh, across the street, there was a police van. <laughs> we took a, a slingshot. They call them wrist rockets. We had a slingshot called a wrist rocket. And we were shooting metal beads, and he blew out the, all the windows in the van, in the cop van. <laughs> Don't tell them in the United States. <laughs> what is happening with the band this, this fall? Right now, we we're finishing our touring. We were We were contemplating doing another they wanted us to come back to europe again in november but i think instead of forcing ourselves down the fans throats we're gonna sit back and finally what we should have done the whole covid uh continue writing the new record my brother pete has 27 songs we have six that are amazing and the rest go from anywhere from good or we can take pieces of it so we just have to sit down and hammer them all into an album and just take our time, because I think uh, we should have done it over COVID, but everybody was scrambling to survive, you know? We're not getting paid to write a record. <laughs> Your brother Peter is not with you on this tour, because no, he had unfortunately. to undergo surgery. Yes. He had a hernia. Uh, actually, the, the European tour we did in June, it started to get worse, and I remember the last few shows... Uh, I asked him, I said, does it hurt when you move? He goes, it doesn't hurt when I move. It's when I sing backups. And I would see him singing backups. And then he would turn and push the hernia back in. Like the the the, the bubble would come up and you'd have to push it back and then continue playing. And I was like, you got to get this taken care of. So uh, hopefully he'll be fine. It's It's an easy operation, but it just had to be done. And he said to us, he goes, it's not fair to you guys to not go on tour and it's not fair to our fans who have bought tickets to not just the festivals but to the club shows especially Uh, a lot of the club shows are really selling well and we were like well we can't not come over and he suggested uh 
Craig from Agnostic Front. And Craig luckily was going to be home for the rest of the summer. And now he's out with us. Brothers in bands tend to argue a lot. I, I just read this book yeah. about the Leuven Brothers, this country music duo. They recorded the album Satan is Real, which you've <laughs> probably seen the, the cover somewhere. Yeah. But it, have you had any big arguments over the years? Or? No, we. if him and me, if anything, him and me side with each other mostly, you know. Uh, I don't think it, it's it's because we're more similar than Armand and Craig. Uh not really any big arguments, just little things that we would do that were squashed, you know, easily, you know. And I mean, we've been together so long, all four of us. It's kind of like we're all four brothers, you know. It's not like we're brothers like, hey, we love each other. We're just like we tolerate each other. We know what pisses the other guy off. So, you know, when to do it, and you know, when not to do it. Which was the last really great show that you went to? Let me think. I took my, like I said, I took my daughter to the interrupters and all that. That was good. I'm trying to, I know there's a but show. But you're trying to introduce your, your daughter to uh, She likes, you know, rock music, like mostly she likes pop music, but I thought she might like the interrupters. And uh, my friends, you know, I'm friends with the, there was a band that opened up the, sh- the tour called The Skints. It's more of like a ska reggae band from England. And I really, I like them. So I wanted to see them. And uh, I took her to see the Interrupters, and she she had fun. And your daughter daughter is twelve. Twelve, yeah. Uh, has she been to one of your shows? Oh yeah, since yeah. she was one years old. Her first show was uh, at the age of one was Sick of It All and Suicidal Tendencies, <laughs> and uh, and I always made fun like when I did the Refuse thing. Uh, my wife was taking pictures of her standing watching us do the sound check, and she goes, "Yeah, my daughter's cooler than all of you. She's at the refuse sound check watching her dad sing. It was great." But yeah, she likes so. You know, I remember this meme that was on Instagram: a picture of Tom, Tom Araya w- with his family and his daughter, who looks like you know, kind of bored in the yeah. picture, and then and Tom is on the other end, like screaming. Yeah, like, and it, yeah! Sa- it says. Even if you're the singer of Slayer, your teenage daughter will think that you're lame. Yep. But yep. Th- what's funny is that she, she actually you know, addressed that and said, you know, that's unfair because I love my father. Yep. And I think that Slayer is a great group, even though their latest records are a bit meh. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> Just imagine how upset he would be wow. when, when his own daughter comes out and says that, you know, God hates us all was like, not eh, a very good album. It's kind of good it's, it's kind of meh. You know? Yeah. I like the early stuff. <laughs> I tell you, I was really uh, happy that we got to play uh, in Finland. They 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 did a festival and we were on it. It was a, the last show of Slayer in Finland. And it was the only time I could see him on their farewell tour. And I was so glad that I did because the set was just so fucking good. Like every song was a hit. Every song was amazing. Uh, I, I loved Slayer. I loved Slayer my whole life. It was great. Have you listened to Turbo Negro, the Norwegian band? Yeah, I know them, yeah. They they um cuz they said something that that reminded me of something in in your book uh that when they come to Germany and they have a new album out, the fans will walk up to them and just scream, "The new album sucks." Yes. And then <laughs> they come back on the next tour. And the same guy will come up to them and say, "You know, the last album, it's not so bad." Yeah. But it's a new album. It sucks. <laughs> of course. That's total Germany. Uh, it was, and they, they always do that. We used to say this thing, we have a two-year curse. Put out a new album and we'll play the death of it for two years and nobody will react to it. And then, okay, then we go write another new record 
and play that one. Then they start asking for songs off the left. Why don't you play this from the last album? Because nobody liked it. You know, nobody moved. Nobody sang. And all of a sudden you want it. I mean, I guess I got to get back to go sound check and get ready for the show tonight. Well, thank you for coming here, Lou. It's been a true pleasure. Thank you. And it's, um, awesome. it's going to be great to see you live tonight. I'm going to go crowd killing. <laughs> or <hope> maybe not. <laughs> Practice your spin kicks or whatever it is. <laughs> that podcast is produced by Daniel Beckström for Leon Media. Lou Kohler. Från Sick of it all, det här med Australien. 